pastor tells the story. He was flying home on a plane from Los Angeles to Vancouver. And he said, I was seated next to a lady and her young daughter. And uh, while we were traveling, he said, I just started reading my Bible as often I do on the plane. And that piqued her interest enough that she actually engaged me uh, in conversation. And he said, she shared with me through that dialogue that uh, she actually attended church regularly in Seattle where she lived. But even though she was a regular church attender, she didn't care much for the Bible. And he said, when I asked her why that was, she said, well, it's full of mistakes and it contained things in there that I just, I just cannot bring myself to actually believe. And he said, well, maybe I can help you with that. Uh, he said, share with me something that you just simply cannot believe about the Bible. She said, well, uh, quite frankly, she said, I have a hard time believing that Jonah swallowed a whale. To which he, he replied, yeah, me too. <laughs> so, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, uh, but I also want you to mark your Bibles this morning in Hebrews chapter 12, because we're going to spend a little time there this morning as well. So Jonah chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 12 uh, here in just a little bit. Last week we began a new series entitled Man on the Run as we examine uh, Jonah's life. And what we learned last week is that if we're honest, uh, there's a little Jonah in some of us and there's a lot of Jonah in most of us. And we concluded that the book of Jonah is not about a rebellious prophet and it's not about a great fish. It is a story about a God who is patient and merciful and extends that mercy to those who actually deserve judgment. And when we become overwhelmed by the mercy of God, the natural overflow of that is that we should run towards people who need God's mercy, not away from those people in culture. And so we're going to start off actually at the end of chapter one, which may seem a little odd that we're going to start off in verse 17, the last verse in chapter one. So let me just offer some explanation before we get there. Chapter 17 introduces a new turn of events or a new idea or thought that is better grouped with chapter two. And that's not a mistake in your Bible. You know, God didn't put it in the wrong place. You got to understand something in the original manuscripts. There were no chapter breaks. All right. It's just one running text and the chapter breaks came later. And so uh, chapter one, verse 17 is where we'll start this morning and read all through chapter two this morning. Uh, chapter one, verse 17 says this, and now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his, uh, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and your billows and your waves passed over me. And then I said, I've been cast out from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The waters surrounded me, even to my soul, the deep closed around me, weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down to the moorings of the mountains, the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer went up to you into your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Listen, anytime in church you can say the word vomit, it's a good Sunday. Amen? And so that is exactly what happened. Now, uh, I don't want to focus, I've told you this, this is not a fish story, but after 15 years of teaching the Bible, I've had enough conversations to know people have lots of questions about this account of Jonah and the fish. So let me just take a few moments and answer what I think are some common questions about the great fish and Jonah living inside of a fish. So 
People ask, is this, uh, is this part of the story literal or is it meant to be uh, figurative? Uh, was it really a whale? Was it some other kind of uh, sea creature? Uh, if this is not a literal account, uh, is the whole story of Jonah just representative of anyone that runs from God? If Jonah's not literal, is most of the Old Testament, should it be taken literal? Or were Adam and Eve just symbolic of the human race? Are they literal people? There's all kinds of stories uh, related to Jonah and this great fish. So let me just take a moment before we get to the text and address quickly uh, some of those questions. But for those of you who cannot wrap your minds around the scientific reality of a man living inside of a fish, let me share this. Neither can I, apart from the supernatural work of God. Uh, one Christian apologist had the best explanation. Here's what he said. He said, there is no point in speculating about the full physical explanation of an incident that primarily is metaphysical or miraculous. Uh, Jonah's survival after being inside a sea creature is no more remarkable than Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego surviving inside a burning fiery furnace there in Daniel chapter 3. And most importantly, it is no more miraculous or supernatural than God raising his own son from the dead. And so the whole faith that we surrender to, the whole faith that we follow as Christ's followers is built around the supernatural work of a God who's not limited by the laws of a universe that he himself spoke into existence. Now, how did a man survive inside a great fish? Listen, God would have had to supernaturally suspend the laws of nature to accomplish his divine purpose. But is that not exactly what the text says? Uh, look at verse 17 in chapter one again. A chapter seven, or verse 17, chapter one says, now the Lord had prepared a great fish. What does that mean? That means God did everything necessary to accomplish this miracle to occur so that his divine purpose could be accomplished in Jonah's life. Didn't say he called any old fish. It didn't just say, he just said, God himself prepared supernaturally that fish to accomplish his divine purpose. And so the reality is some of this for some people that causes them lots of doubt. But let me just encourage you this morning. Anytime you see the supernatural work of God in scripture, don't let that cause doubt in your life. Let that cause worship. Let that remind you that God is so far above you that you and I in our finite minds cannot comprehend the infinite ways of our God that he chooses to accomplish his purpose. Let wonder lead to worship, not to doubt. Uh, when I was first started preaching 15 years ago, I had a hard time uh, saying, openly admitting, I don't know. Uh, now, 15 years later, I find myself more and more often saying, I don't know. And I'm not discouraged by that. I'm encouraged by a God who is incomprehensible. Yet all of his glory, he still chose to step into my life. Let that lead to worship. And so the reality is this, uh, some people say, well, uh, is Jonah a literal person or is he just representative of anyone who's uh, just running from God? So he's kind of a figurehead of everyone who's rebelling against God. Well, the reality is I believe he's literal and here's why. Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 12 gave reference to a literal Jonah. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 14, uh, verses 23 and 29, it describes Jonah as one uh, who ministered during the King Jeroboam's reign of northern Israel. That's a pretty specific, literal description of someone who is a figurative person. So I believe Jonah was a literal person, not a non-literal person. Uh, was it a whale? Was it, was it some sea creature? Was it Puff the Magic Dragon? You know, whoa, whoa, that's right. Uh, the reality is this, the, the Bible just calls it a great fish. The word in Hebrew, uh, in, in other places where the word whale is used, it's not the same word in Hebrew. 
And so all we know is that it was a great fish. Could it have been a whale? Uh, I've not seen a lot of whales up close, but in pictures, they do appear to be a great fish, right? So it could have been a whale, might not a whale, not the whole point of the story. We're not totally sure. The Bible just calls it a great uh, fish. So do I believe these are literal events in the book of Jonah? Yes. Can I explain them from the supernatural work of God? No, but not any more than I can explain that God raised his own son from the dead on my behalf. And so this is not a fish story, though. This is a God story. And I just want us to focus on one aspect about God this morning and the rest of our time. And the thing I want us to learn about God is simply this. God loves you too much to leave you how he found you. That's the story of Jonah here in chapter 2. God loves you too much to to leave you exactly how you found you. This is so important. This little principle I want to teach you about God's love. It is so important. If you're listening, say amen. The thesis of chapter 2 that we see in here in the book of Jonah and all over uh, the character of God is revealed in scripture is simply this. God's love is a uh, perfecting love, not a pampering love. God's love is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. And you have to understand that. Uh, people argue passionately, well, I just think we should teach that God is a, a God of love. And listen, that's true. But reality is this, that so many times when people are preaching about the love of God, they're doing so at the expense of the holiness of God or the justice of God because they want to make God more marketable. And reality is, is that yes, God is the God of love, but his love is not a pampering love. His love is a perfecting love. His love says, hey, listen, the whole goal of saving you, the whole purpose in salvation is to transform you into the image of my son, Jesus Christ. And I'll do whatever it takes, even if that means using some uncomfortable circumstances along the way. Why? Because God's love is a perfecting love, not a pampering love that's revealed in the scripture and here in Jonah chapter two. And so the reality is this, if you don't understand that, you'll be looking on earth, you'll get disappointed with God. I can't tell you how many times the last 15 years someone uh, decides they want to start following the Lord and, and they're excited and they get in church and pastor, you're going to see me every week and, and life is great and God's good and God is love and all those things. And then a trial walks into their life and they pray and God doesn't take it away. God tries to teach them my grace is sufficient during this time. God allows, God says, hey, here's a trial, remain under, I'll grow you, I'll produce maturity, all those things, but they don't remain under it because all the while someone told them that God is a God of love and what they thought that meant was that God's love is a pampering love, not realizing that God's love is a perfecting love and God will use whatever it takes to produce the work in us that we did not desire apart from those trials and difficulties in our life. And so the Focus of chapter two is not on the fish. The focus of chapter two is a disobedient servant and God's discipline on his life. God will do whatever it takes to help you become more and more like Jesus, even if that means life gets a little uncomfortable. Have you noticed this in your own life? I find that in my life, uh, when life gets difficult, when life gets hard, when God allows trials to enter into my life, I find that my prayer life ratchets up exponentially. Have you noticed that? I find that when life is hard, I have a deep hunger for the word of God. All of a sudden, the Psalms become real. And so God uses whatever it takes to turn our hearts back towards him. Why? Because his love is not a pampering love. It is a perfecting love. And that's exactly what Jonah found out here uh, in chapter 2. Look at verses 1 and 2 again and see how this actually works for our good and for God's glory. Jonah chapter 2 verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord. Now, if you remember back in chapter one of your last week, not when the storm came, he wasn't praying, he was sleeping. 
Not when the pagan sailors said, hey, um, pray to your God. Didn't pray then. When the captain said, what's going on? Didn't pray then. When the guy said, what should we do? He didn't pray then. It wasn't until he began to suffer some consequences that God allowed his discipline into his life. Then he started praying. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the fish's belly. And he cried, listen to this. I cried out to the Lord, here it is, because of my affliction. You want, I, I could just assume from this passage, I think safely, is that God had given him bright skies and, and smooth seas and a little drink with an umbrella in there. Listen, Jonah would have kept on sailing all the way along. Not once looking at the Lord, not once being motivated to turn towards God. But God said, listen, I'm going to send a storm. I'm going to prepare a fish. I'm going to do whatever it takes to turn your heart back towards me. The word because in verse 2 indicates a cause and effect transaction took place. Look at it again. Verse 2. I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to the Lord. Uh, that's the effect. What was the cause? Because of my affliction. Not, not because of comfort. Not because God made life so smooth I felt motivated to turn towards him. He said, no, no. The affliction, the discipline of God in my life is what produced in me what was not there prior to God's discipline in my life. Now, I could read down through verses 3 through 7, but let me just give you a, a synopsis of verses 3 through 7 from Jonah's mouth. Uh, discipline is unpleasant, all right? That's what verses 3 through 7, it was dark, weeds are around me, I went down to the greater depths, you know, just over and over, verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, basically what he's saying is, it was incredibly uncomfortable, but that discomfort caused me to cry out to the Lord in my affliction. So what he's saying in layman's terms is this, God did whatever he needed to do to turn my heart back towards him, and guess what? He'll do the same thing in your life. He'll do the same thing in your life. There are three sources of hard times in our life. I can't tell you how many times people walk into my office and say, man, my life is upside down. I can't make sense of what's going on. And so uh, let me just, you can write this down. Maybe this will pertain to you now, maybe later. Maybe you know someone here. Three reasons that hard times come into our life. Reason number one are trials. Trials. James chapter one says, consider it pure joy uh, when you fall into various trials. Why? Why would you consider a trial joy if it's unpleasant? Because a trial is God moving towards me for my benefit. A trial is God saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to grow you through this circumstance. And so trials are a source of difficult times. God allows trials. Uh, the second source of difficult time are consequences. Uh, consequences are you cause. Uh, trials are something we remain under while God teaches us. Consequences are things we repent of and turn from. So trials God allows, consequences you cause, the third source of hard times is discipline and God causes that. Uh, you say, where do you see that in the text? Look at verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3, for you cast me into the deep. How many of you have ever been on a cruise? Yeah, just raise your hand up. Yeah, how many of you hate the people that just raise their hand up? Would you just acknowledge that? Right? <laughs> Did you not realize on a cruise you can eat all you want? I'm, thank God I have a fast metabolism, but you can all, listen, you can just eat. It's incredible. And uh, when Tosh and I got married, uh, we went on a cruise. We've never went on one since 20 years later, but went on a cruise. It was just overwhelming. And, but I remember one part I didn't like. Anytime you got near the edge, I just could feel my heart beating faster. My stomach began to hurt. I thought, oh my word. And then you read every now and then that someone falls off the side of a cruise ship, Right. Listen, Jonah didn't fall off of the side of Royal Caribbean, okay? God pushed him overboard, right? Like God looked down and said, hey, man overboard. 
What does it say there? Verse 3. For you cast me into the deep. God, you did this. Now, here's what I know. The picture of a God who disciplines doesn't give people the warm fuzzies. And so because of that, people won't preach about that aspect of God because they know that it doesn't sell tickets and fill seats. But guess what? It's biblical. It's biblical. It's right here uh, in this passage. And one of our core convictions is we don't teach around tough truths. Uh, we teach through them. When the Bible says that all scripture is, is profitable, uh, we take that as a true statement. And so let me just teach you briefly about the discipline of God because this is what's going on in Jonah's life and it may be happening in your life as well. So flip over uh, to Hebrews chapter 12 where I ask you to mark at the very beginning. And I'm going to read in Hebrews chapter 12 uh, verses 3 down through uh, verse 11. And so Hebrews chapter 12 uh, verses 3 through 11 uh, starts off and it says this way. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, uh, lest you become weary and discouraged in your soul. So your life's hard, uh, so was Jesus' life, okay? Uh, you have not resisted the bloodshed striving against sin, and you've forgotten the exhortation which speaks to your sons. Now, now listen to this. My son, do not despise the chastening or discipline of the Lord. Don't be discouraged when you're rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens or disciplines and scourges uh, or whips every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening or discipline, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you're without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate, not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and lives? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as best seemed to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness." Now, no chastening or discipline seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, let me just give you a couple highlights uh, from what he's saying there in this key passage on God's discipline in Hebrews 12. Uh, one thing I want to highlight is simply this. Discipline is evidence that I belong to the Father. That's what verse 5 and 6 is. He said, hey, one of the ways to know that you're an actual son is because you've gotten whipped by God. God has disciplined you. How many of you have ever spanked anyone else's kid? Yeah, well, got several of you proudly, two hands. Yes, I have. Yes, I have. Uh, we had a friend who... I laugh every time I think of this story. We had a friend who worked at a daycare. This was years ago. And there was just this little boy in there who was totally rotten. He was, you know, just a little boy. He would just mean and, you know, bite other kids, all this kind of stuff. And she said, I had purpose in my heart that the first time I could, I could get him off to the side. I was going to wear him out for the glory of God. <laughs> now, it, you cannot do that in a daycare, by the way. Just I want to acknowledge that. And so she said, it, sure enough, it happened one day. He chucks a toy at a kid. He bites a little kid. She thought, today's the day. Right? And not the day of salvation. Today's the day of judgment. And so she said, that little boy was in the room. She said, I just pulled him off to the side. She said, uh, I looked around. No, no one was looking. She said, I bent down. She said, I wore him out. She said, and he turned around and said, don't pank me again. I said, what happened? She said, I screamed, you can talk. She had to know he could talk. Scared to death he was going to tell on her. Tell on her. Listen, as a general rule of thumb... We don't spank other people's kids. Why? Because they don't belong to us. And so one of the attributes of the discipline of God is it's evidence that God is disciplining his children. 
So when God brings discipline in our life, it's not that God's angry. It's not that, well, maybe I don't belong to the Lord. No, it's evidence of the fact that you do belong to him. Uh, discipline's evidence I belong to the Father. Uh, contrast that. A lack of discipline is evidence I don't belong to the Father. You ever met a person who professes to know Christ as their Savior, but their life is not a pattern of obedience, and you wonder why God allows that? Well, one of the reasons is because of this, because they don't belong to him. They may have had some experience, they may have got baptized, they may have cried tears at some camp and sang kumbaya at VBS, but their life is a pattern of disobedience. And look at what verse 8 says in Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 8 says this, but if you're without God's discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you're illegitimate and not sons. So if a person can go on openly sinning and God never disciplines them, it's evidence they don't belong to the Father despite whatever profession they've made at some point in life. And the third thing about God's discipline is this discipline produces in me what I did not desire previously, which is God's holiness. You see, discipline isn't God punishing me. Discipline is a gift of grace. Why? Because God uses it to train me in righteousness. God uses it to cause a desire for holiness in my heart. You say, where's that at? Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 10. Go back and read it again. For indeed, for a few days, chasten uh, us seem best to them. But he, listen to this, he, God, for what? For our profit. Why? How does that profit us? How does getting a spanking help? What's it say? That we may be partakers of his holiness. Look at verse 11. No chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterwards it yields or produces the peaceable fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. Now, you, you just sing here and say, hey, listen, uh, you're just trying to make God look good. I, I mean, is that not the same thing as punishment? No, no, no. Uh, punishment and discipline could not be uh, more opposite. Discipline uh, is training in righteousness. Uh, discipline is the Lord training us to produce a better disciple. Let me, let me compare and uh, contrast these two things. Uh, the goal of discipline, according to verses 11 and 12 in Hebrews 12, uh, is, is growth. God's saying, hey, apart from this, you didn't desire holiness. Apart from this, uh, the work of God was stalled in your life. The goal of punishment is vengeance. Punishment is punitive. Discipline is redemptive. Punishment is self-focused. Why? Because it gratifies my sinful anger. Discipline is others focused. Listen, after reading Hebrews 12 and seeing this happen and play out in Jonah's life and experiencing it in my own life, I'm convinced that God is the only parent who could ever say with integrity, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Because God has moved towards us in love. And his discipline is an act of grace in our lives. And what we conclude from the quick reading is that discipline is a good thing. Even though it sounds like a bad thing. Now, uh, let me explain. I want every student in the room to listen to me closely. Because this has application beyond this morning and beyond the book of Jonah. So if you're listening, say amen. Discipline is not the absence of love. The absence of love is apathy. Listen, when, 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 I don't, when I don't even care enough to confront you anymore, I've given up on you. When I no longer uh, put discipline in the lives of my children, the lives of those I love, what I've said is, listen, I don't care if you're running from God. I know that you're running toward consequences. I don't even care anymore. Have your own way. Give yourself over to whatever you're pursuing and, and just let the consequences 
ruin your life. Listen, that's not a person who loves them. That's a person who's totally apathetic. They no longer even care enough to confront. So when you and I are running from the Lord, the most loving thing he can do is the discipline us. Why? So that we turn our hearts back towards him. The most loving thing God could have done in Jonah's life was prepare a great fish. Because discipline is not the absence of love. Apathy is. Now, I've met parents over the years who say, well, I don't know that I agree with that. I'd, rather, I'd just rather motivate my kids with kind words and, and encouragement, and I'm not really into the whole discipline thing. Well, uh, let me just say this candidly. You don't understand love from a biblical perspective then in the role of parenting. Uh, Proverbs chapter 13, verse 24 says this. Uh, Proverbs 13, 24 says, those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. Those who love their children care enough to discipline them. Those who spare the rod of discipline hate their children. How many of you just realized your parents really loved you growing up? Did you just realize that? How many of you have ever cut a switch? Anybody cut their own switch? Yeah, did you know this? My whole childhood, I never got spanked one time. That explains a lot, doesn't it? That explains a lot. I didn't realize my parents didn't love me. They didn't discipline me. That's what he says. I remember sharing this principle with a parent one time of an unruly child. And she said, well, I just, I just don't know what to do. This, you know, this little boy, he's, just, he's out of control. And... And uh, I just can't bring myself to discipline him, though. And I said, well, why is that? Because I shared this verse with her. She said, well, it's not his fault. And I said, oh, this is going to be good. And I said, well, do tell. And she said, well, he, he can't help it. He has ODD. And I said, he's, he's odd? She said, no, 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 he has ODD. And I said, what's that? And she said, he has oppositional defiant disorder. Now, that's a real thing. I, I learned later that that is a real thing, so I'm not making light of that. Uh, but after spending some time around this little boy for a few years of, of pastoring that family, what I realized is he did not, in fact, have ODD. What he had is NAS, need a spanking. Amen? <laughs> I think that's where God birthed me a vision for surrogate spanking. You won't spank that little sinner? I will. I'll come alongside. <laughs> Listen, when my life is comfortable... I don't feel a great need to change. When my life gets uncomfortable, I'm really open to change with the hopes that it might alleviate the suffering. And so uh, God had God not sent the storm and summoned the fish, Jonah would have landed in Tarshish with a drink in his hand and missed out on being used of the greatest revival in the history of humanity that we read about in Jonah chapter 3. But God will do whatever it takes to turn your heart back to him. Why? Because his discipline is an act of grace. You see, God loves you too much to leave you how he found you. God loved Jonah too much to let him keep running apart from the discipline of God in his life. Now, being disciplined of God is not optional if you belong to him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. Matter of fact, if you're not disciplined by God, you don't belong to him. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. So that's, that's not an option. Like you can't sit here and go, you know, I didn't sign up for that part. I just want to go to heaven, right? That's not an option. What is optional is how you respond. You can respond in defiance. God, you're going to turn up the heat. I'm just going to keep running faster. You can shake your fist at God. You can rebel. I'm convinced that in Jonah chapter 3, Jonah did in fact not fully repent. We'll look at that next week. But at least in Jonah chapter 2, he did say the right words. He chose to say the right words in responding to God's discipline. Look at verse 8 uh, in, in verse 9 again in Jonah chapter 2. Verse 8 says this, those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. That word mercy in the original language, it means God's pursuing love. So, so let me make simple what he says there in verse 8. What he's saying is whoever hangs on to their idol so that they can keep running from God and maintain control of that idol, he said they're trading that idol for the pursuing love of God. 
Do you realize this? Every time you're running from God, what you're saying is, God, I've got this thing in my life that's so important. I don't want to surrender it to you. I know if I turn back towards you, you're going to call me to repentance. You're going to call me to let go of that idol. But Lord, that idol has my heart's affections. So I'd rather just keep running, Lord, than to give that to you. And what he's saying in verse 8 is every time that you run from God so that you can maintain control of that idol, whatever it is, uh, what you're saying is this idol satisfies my heart more than God's pursuing love in my life. Now, if you haven't been around here, uh, maybe you don't understand what an idol is. It's not a wooden statue. An idol is anything that promises to do what only God can do in our lives. An idol promises approval. It promises comfort. It promises security or freedom from fear. You get the whole idea. What were Jonah's idols? Number one, uh, Jonah had the idol of pride. God, my, my, we're, we're Israelites. We're your chosen people. We deserve your mercy. Those Ninevites, they're, they're wicked. They don't deserve your mercy. And if I go preach, you may actually pour mercy out on them. God, I, I'm, I deserve it. They don't. The other idol that Jonah had was the idol of self. He wanted to do what he wanted to do at the expense of being obedient to God. Being in charge of his own life brought him more satisfaction than being in the will of God. And so Jonah said, hey, listen, these things are so important that I'd rather hang on to them than, than receive your pursuing love or your mercy in verse 8. But God turned up the heat in his life and finally came to a place and said, what in the world am I doing? I'm holding on to worthless idols at the expense of God's mercy or pursuing love in my life. And every time that you run from God, you're doing the exact same thing. Every time you're making the same trade. Whenever a Christian marries a non-Christian because they want companionship more than they want to obey God, that's idolatry. When a per person pursues money to the point that they uh, cannot give any of away for kingdom causes, listen, that's idolatry. They want security more than they want God. Uh, whenever someone puts more effort in their child's achievements than they do their discipleship, uh, that's a form of idolatry. Listen, an idol is anything uh, that you take refuge in. An idol is anything that you turn to comfort other than the Lord. An idol is anything you turn to for joy. It's whatever you turn to uh, when you're afraid. It's the thing you value so much that you know that if you kept, quit running, you'd have to hand it over to God. So here's the question for everyone in this room. What is it in your life that if God asked you to surrender to him, would tempt you to run? Let me just awkwardly pause, let that sink in. What is it in your life that if God asked you to surrender to him, you would be tempted to run rather than surrender? That's the root of idolatry. That's the root of idolatry in our lives. And whatever that thing is, listen, here's what you need to understand this morning according to verse 8. You're trading that, whatever it is, control, comfort, it doesn't matter, fill in the blank. Whatever that is, you think that's more valuable. It satisfies the affections of your heart deeper than having God's pursuing love in your life. Listen, let me just say this, write this down. This is uh, in the Hebrew. You're getting ripped off. You're getting ripped off in that trade. And maybe you're here and you just say, you know what, that, that's me. Rather than being obedient to God, I'd rather have control of my life. Rather than living open-handedly, I'd rather just hang on. Rather than just, whatever it is, fill in the blank. And so what do you do if that's you this morning? You do what Jonah did, or at least what he said. Look at verse 9. 
but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. Let me tell you what thanksgiving is biblically. It's, it's, it's recognizing that God provided what lacked. With the voice of thanksgiving. Remember, he's praying this, saying this from the belly of a fish. I will pay what I vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. You see, if you're here and you're running from God and his will for your life, listen, the only appropriate response is to, is to do what Jonah did. Just say, Lord, I, I can't fix this. Jonah couldn't go to church. Jonah couldn't give an offering. Jonah couldn't sacrifice an animal. Jonah couldn't give alms to the poor. Jonah had one response when he came to the end of himself. He said, Lord, I, need, I can't fix this. I need you to save me from myself. Lord, salvation is totally from you. I cannot fix this. I'm helpless apart from your mercy and grace in my life. God didn't put Jonah in the fish to pay him back. He put Jonah in the fish to bring him back. Bring him back to the place of refuge. The refuge was not running. It was running to the Lord, not away from him. And so the reality is here, that is true in your life as well. It's true in your life as well. Listen, you don't have to respond to God's mercy in your life. You don't have to turn. You can keep running. But if you keep running, hear me this morning. You'll discover the writer of Proverbs was right when he said this. The way of the transgressor is hard. And you can choose to not respond to God's mercy in your life. But what you cannot choose are the consequences that come from running from God. And listen, God will forgive you. But often those consequences will linger far beyond his forgiveness. And so you have a choice this morning. You don't have to run towards the Lord. You can keep running away from him. Or you can come to a place that Jonah did in verse 9 and say, Lord, save me. I can't fix my life. Salvation is of the Lord. Save me. The story of Jonah has some incredible principles in it. Incredible. But I don't want you to miss that the bigger story is it points to the story of Jesus. Because the gospel is a picture of God extending mercy to people who deserve judgment. But you'll never experience that pursuing love until you cry out. I can't, I can't fix it. I can't fix it, Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. And the good news of God's pursuing love is that God's grace is bigger than your sin and God's love is bigger than your rebellion. So no matter what you've done, you don't have to run from God. You can run towards him. You say, that doesn't seem fair. It's not fair. It's grace. Thank God for it. Would you bow your heads this morning? If your heads bow this morning, honest before God, I, I, just, I just want to ask you an honest question this morning. Christian, non-Christian, doesn't matter. I'm just ask you a question this morning. In your heart of hearts where God sees, are you running from God? Are you trying to fix your own life with morality and good deeds and all those things? Or are you running towards the Father this morning? 
if you're here this morning, you say, you know what? I'm running from God. I've been running from God for a long time. I've, I've, I've tried to be better. I've tried religion. I've tried, I've tried harder. I'm just at a place now where I say, Lord, salvation's totally from you. I can't fix this. I can't save myself from my sins. I felt the pain of consequences of running. I'm just at the place where I'm tired of running. And I want to run back towards God this morning. If you're here this morning, you say, hey, that, that's me. That's me. I need to run towards the Lord this morning. I need to quit running from God. I don't want to trade these idols for his pursuing love in my life any longer. I want to run towards the Lord, not away from him. If that's you this morning, honest before God, right now, would you just lift up your hand and say, hey, that's me this morning. I'm tired of running from God. Amen. Anybody else? I'm tired of running from God. I want to run towards the Father, not away from Him any longer. Anybody else this morning just lift up your hand? Amen. Amen. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, listen, you can run towards Him this morning in salvation. And I don't know where you've been or what you've done, but I know this about the character of God. God is more interested in where you're going than where you've been. And if you're here this morning and you're here and you don't know Christ, you're lost. God will save you right where you're at this morning. Would you just pray and invite Christ into your life? Would you ask him to forgive you of your sins and be your Lord and Savior this morning? Would you run towards the Father in the person of Jesus Christ and accept him today as your Savior? God will save you right now, right where you're at. You can be saved. Father, we're grateful for your grace. We are grateful for your pursuing love. God, I'm grateful that you're not like me. You never get tired of prodigals coming back home. And so, Lord, help us to understand this morning that we can run from your house and run from your word and run from your people we cannot run from your presence. God, help us to come to the place to acknowledge whatever it is in our life where we want control over. God, it, it is a worthless idol that we've traded for your pursuing love. God, overwhelm us with your love and your mercy to the point that we run towards you, not away from you. God, thank you for loving me so much. You didn't leave me. You didn't leave me like you found me. We pray all this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. because we can. Amen.